Welcome to the Factual Forecast, a look at the week's biggest stories and what they mean from the editors at Factual. I'm Jimmy Lovis. Today is May 25th, and in this week's forecast, we've got the Greek parliament being sworn in and then dissolved, Turkey's presidential election runoff, the Korea-Pacific Island summit in Seoul, the U.S. debt ceiling deadline, and a look at the Ukraine-aligned attack in Belgorod, Russia. You can also read about these stories and more in our weekly newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. Greece's parliament will be sworn in on Sunday and then dissolved the following day after last week's vote failed to elect a new government. Just last Sunday, Greek incumbent Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis's new democracy party secured almost 41% of the vote in the parliamentary elections, just four seats short of a majority. Following the result, Mitsotakis announced he would call for fresh elections on June 25th in order to avoid a coalition. Now, since there was no agreement on a coalition following Sunday's vote, protocol demands the parliament to be sworn in and then dissolved. Under a new electoral system coming into effect next month, the winning party is granted 50 bonus seats in the second round, which means Mitsotakis will likely be allowed to form a single-party government. Millions of voters will go to the polls across Turkey on Sunday for the second round of the country's presidential election. Incumbent President Recep Tayyip Erdogan faces off against opposition leader Kamal Kılıçdaroğlu in a runoff. The first round of the presidential election, held on May 14th, saw a better-than-expected finish for Erdogan. He finished at 49.5%, almost 5% ahead of Kılıçdaroğlu. Still, with neither candidate gaining a majority of the vote, the election has triggered a runoff and a renewed campaign as each side attempts to win over new votes. Erdogan has secured a crucial endorsement from third-place candidate and ultranationalist Sanan Ogan, who won just over 5% of the vote, and he looks set to win a sharp reversal of fortunes after predictions of his defeat only two weeks ago. Kolich Dorolu has appealed to the youth vote and the 8 million Turks who didn't vote in the first round. Now, if Erdogan wins, he will begin the five-year term as president, cementing a grasp on power that has barely wavered since his Justice and Development Party took power in 2002. Parliamentary elections held on the same day as the presidential election's first round saw Erdogan's party remain as the largest group even though it lost seats, with his People's Alliance coalition holding on to a majority, giving him potential control of the executive and the legislature. South Korea's President Yoon Suk-yeol will host his first Korea-Pacific Islands Summit in Seoul on Monday. All 18 members of the Pacific Islands Forum have been invited to Seoul for the meetings. They are expected to discuss strategic partnerships between the country and the region, along with issues such as climate change and disaster response. Now, the Forum, and the individual islands within it, are beginning to have a larger impact and importance in the region. The United States is set to plan a similar summit in 2023, the second in two years, after having to cancel a visit to Papua New Guinea. Other countries in the region, such as South Korea, are pushing for larger cooperation with islands in an effort to parallel China's growing influence there as well. Korea will also be using the summit in its bid to host the World Expo 2030, with voting set to take place in November. The U.S. Treasury will potentially be unable to meet the government's financial obligations as soon as next Thursday, that is, if a deal is not reached to raise the debt ceiling. The tenor of talks between the White House and Republicans has swung back and forth between optimistic and pessimistic, with the two sides reportedly far apart on future federal spending levels. 
The Treasury has also reportedly asked federal agencies if upcoming payments can be made at a later date in an effort to stave off the so-called X date for as long as possible. Now, a default would have devastating effects on the U.S. economy, with financial markets taking a significant hit and a recession almost certain to follow. Everything from veterans' benefits to Social Security payments could be held up by the debt standoff, as well as wages for more than 4 million federal workers. Our last item for this forecast is an update on the war in Ukraine. For more on that, we've got the lead for our Europe desk, Alex Moore. Hello, Alex. Hello, Jimmy. So glad you're here. I always look forward to you coming on and getting us educated on what's going on with the war. I guess to start, it seems like a lot of the news surrounding Ukraine lately has actually involved Belgorod, Russia. Can you give us a bit of a recap on what's going on there? Yeah, of course. Uh, On Monday, uh, early Monday morning, there were a couple of Ukraine-aligned militias that consist of anti-Kremlin Russian militants that penetrated the Russian state border into Belgorod Oblast, coming from Sumy Oblast and Kharkiv Oblast uh, in Ukraine. And this ended up being the most significant breach, ground breach, that is, uh, of Moscow's border since the outbreak of the war last year. So the militias are known as the Russian Volunteer Corps and the Freedom of Russia Legion. And they consist of former Russian citizens that oppose the Kremlin for various reasons for the Russian Volunteer Corps. They're, you know, they've got some pretty onerous, far-right, fascist, czarist ideology. But uh, nonetheless, they attacked some border checkpoints and advanced into three settlements within Belgorod, so a few kilometers into the border. So this was a significantly more advanced advance, so to speak, into Belgorod's uh, compared to the march. Uh, the similar incident in March in Bryansk Oblast, and they ended up partaking in essentially a firefight involving cross-border shelling and small arms fire for the course of about a day, um, centering around a place called Graveron in Belgorod Oblast. So Russia, a day later, claimed to have fully repulsed attack, claimed to have killed 70 militants. A day later, the militia groups in question gave sort of a, an ad hoc press conference, and they acknowledged retreating back across the border, they only admitted the two deaths on their side, but um, they did claim to have captured some Russian equipment and vice versa. Russia claimed to have captured some of their equipment. And and what's the latest then? What How are things stand at the moment? Uh, the latest is, uh, again, that the, um, the uh, anti-Kremlin militias have confirmed that they've sort of retreated back across the border into Ukraine. Uh, in Belgorod, for a day, they instituted uh, sort of a rarity in Russia, which is a counterterrorism regime, which we've seen them do in the past on a couple of notable notable occasions. But it essentially locks the region down, and Belgorod did that for a full day while the defense ministry and the FSB responded to the uh, incursion into Belgorod. So significantly more more advanced than the uh, the Bryansk incident from from early March. Um, obviously, we've seen Ukraine. Um, allegedly Ukraine, target deep within Russia with drone strikes, um, Engels Air Base most notably a couple times. But as far as ground advances go, this was the most significant one, um, advancing a couple a couple of kilometers and a couple of towns into Belgorod. Um, reportedly, uh, Ukrainian sources and their defense intelligence complex reported that Russia even went so far as to evacuate some tactical nuclear weapons that are positioned in Belgorod sort of close to where the combat was taking place. So it, it was a pretty significant flare-up within 
Russian soil. And Belgorod especially has seen almost constant daily cross-border shelling and activation of air defense over the city of Belgorod. But this was the first time we've seen sort of a significant uh, assault with ground forces into uh, internationally recognized Russian territory. What have the reactions to this been like? I know Russia's obviously had a strong reaction, but you know, how did Ukraine respond and what was the international response like? Uh, R- Russia, as noted, they, they implemented the counterterrorism regime and they referred to it as, as just outright terrorism. Um, Ukraine has essentially denied direct involvement, but they did admit to exchanging information, was the quote, with the militants, um, though they reiterated that they did not directly partake in the raid. And sort of like the the relationship between these militias and the Ukrainian military is a bit convoluted. We don't really know the extent to which they are cooperating. There are certain reports that the Freedom of Russia Legion is folded into the international legions of Ukraine. If you recall, back in the early days of the war, there were foreign fighters flooding into the conflict. They were creations of sort of hodgepodge units that were, in some instances, folded into the National Guard. But it's pretty unclear the extent to which there's direct cooperation. But interestingly, the U.S., um, they spoke relatively harshly about the attack. It does appear there's not direct confirmation, but there's a lot of visual evidence to corroborate that a couple of U.S. supplied MRAPs, so armored vehicles, were seized by Russia and were used by the the Russian militias. Um, And the U.S. has been extremely consistently and vocally in public and also very presumably in private, um, opposed to Ukraine striking internationally recognized Russian territory and especially with U.S. provided weapons, given the escalatory risk involved there. And I, I think we can safely assume that behind behind closed doors and private channels, those are probably even more direct uh, and harsh um, sort of admonishments of Ukraine doing that, um, especially, again, given the the pretty onerous uh Nazi czarist ideology, specifically of the Russian Volunteer Corps, uh, which was involved in the raid. So the U.S. Um, response was notable there. Ukraine also sort of struck a bit of a trolling tone, one might say, given the ways in which this very limited incursion into Belgorod mirrored the 2014 Russian invasion of Ukraine in the early days of that, prior to Russia just outwardly sending in defense ministry troops in mid to late 2014. So there were some comments sort of trolling Russian talking points from April and May of 2014 when Russia was, you know, denying direct involvement in arming and sort of command and control of the separatist quote unquote elements in eastern Ukraine. So the responses were were notable for a few reasons. Well, this wouldn't be a forecast if we didn't talk about what might happen in the future. So what can you tell us about what we should be watching for next? Yeah, the... um. Again, we don't know the extent to which Kiev directed this, but um, if there is a strategic rationale, my guess, and it's likely that it would be to divert Russian forces along the very vast line of contact in the occupied parts of Ukraine um, toward defending their state borders in the northern northeast portion of the country and from the uh, the border regions, because clearly Russia was caught off guard by this, um, you know, the fact that a few dozen, 70 or so militiamen were able to advance a few towns into Belgorod uh, as a bit of an eye-opener. So 
Potentially, they're hoping that Russia sort of cycles personnel from the occupied parts of Ukraine to defend the state border, which would um, soften defense lines for an anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive. We don't know exactly where that's going to be, but the war is in sort of a state of flux right now with Bakhmut falling to Wagner and Russian forces, which was the the main major offensive happening for multiple months in Ukraine. So now that that has essentially culminated, the war is in a bit of a state of flux. Uh, Ukraine did launch some limited counterattacks to the flanks of Bakhmut in the northeast and southeast and holds high ground that overlooks Bakhmut. So the Russian defense ministry, which is now in the process of taking over the city from Wagner forces, um, is in a bit of a precarious position there. Some people are saying they're at direct risk of being partially encircled. I don't know if we're ready to say that yet, but there is definitely topographical factors in play there that make that sort of a precarious hold in the city. Um, we could see Ukraine try to cross the Dnipro into Kherson. We could see them push south from Zaporizhia to sort of sever the land bridge to Crimea. We just don't really know what Ukraine's going to do next. But what has happened over the last few weeks is we've seen a resumption of uh, consistent long-range Russian missile strikes and drone strikes in Kiev and to the west of Kiev in Ukraine. Those had essentially completely paused for two months following the fall and winter Russian missile campaign that was consistently targeting critical energy infrastructure in central and western Ukraine. Uh, so we've seen a massive uptick in the last two and a half, three weeks now of relatively consistent Russian attacks. These are different than those. They appear to be targeting mainly military sites, uh, logistical hubs, ammo depots, air defense sites being a big one. Um, so that's sort of a trend that we've been monitoring over the last couple of weeks that I expect to continue. So yeah, a lot of moving parts. And uh, again, the war with, with Bakhmut coming to sort of a culmination, the war is in a bit of a state of flux right now. And uh, Ukraine's kind of got the initiative on what happens next. Well, Alex, uh, we'll leave it there for today, but I know we'll have you back in the future as things develop and always appreciate your insight here. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Great to be on. Take care. As always, thank you for listening to The Factual Forecast. We publish our forward-looking podcast and newsletter each Thursday to help you get a jump start on the week ahead. Please subscribe and review wherever you find your podcasts. We'd love it if you'd consider telling a friend about us. Today's episode included contributions by Factual Editors Jess Fino, David Wiley, Jaime Calle Moreno, and Joe Vieira. Our interview featured editor Alex Moore, and it was produced and edited by me, Jimmy Lovis. Our music comes courtesy of Andrew Gosby. Until next time, if you have any feedback, suggestions, or events we missed, drop us a note by emailing hello at factual.com. <laughs>